how, how easily satisfied are you? I mean, what is it that is enough for you? What is it that satisfies you? What makes you happy? That's another way of saying it. Why do you live your life? Do you live your life for relationships? Do you live your life because of your, for your job? Do you live your life for, for money? Do you live your life for, for comfort? Is it adventure? Is it success? What is it? And let me ask you a question. Are these enough for you? What does your heart tell you? Are these enough for you? You know, C.S. Lewis once said this, quotes, listen carefully. We are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quotes. What is this infinite joy that C.S. Lewis mentions is offered to us? I don't know what it is, but I don't know about you, but I would like it. Can we begin to experience that joy now? Really? What about all the pain and disappointment in this life? How do we have that infinite joy even now that is offered to us in the midst of the pain? Well, that is the great purpose of Psalm 84 to answer that question. And so let me give you the theme here. And I want you to hear this not as a cliche in Christianity, but as the truth of Psalm 84. That's different. Blessedness, or if you like to call it joy, or if you like to call it happiness, or if you like to call it ultimate satisfaction. Blessedness, happiness, ultimate satisfaction, joy itself is found in God and in God alone. That is the great message of Psalm 84. So the question becomes, how can we experience this satisfaction in God alone and I would say Psalm 84 then unpacks to answer that question that satisfaction in God alone is going to be marked by three characteristics in the life of every believer. It's going to be marked by three characteristics, and that's our simple outline this morning. Number one in verses one through four, satisfaction in God alone is marked by delight in God's presence, by delight in God's presence. Look at verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! 
My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist here, we're going to call him a psalmist, even though that's the sons of Korah. It's a, really a group of people. The psalmist, more than anything here, just wants to be near the Lord just wants to be in the presence of his God, of his Father. It's his satisfaction. He just wants to be in the temple. And in that day, it was the temple where the presence of God was found. We see it in verse 1, your dwelling places. Verse 2, the courts of the Lord. Verse 3, a house and your altars. Verse 4, your house. All of these are references to the temple in Jerusalem where the Shekinah glory of God, the special presence of Yahweh was to be experienced under the old covenant right there in the temple. And notice the intensity of the desire to be in that place. Did you notice that? Does that sound boring and ritualistic under the old covenant? Does it? Boring? His soul longed. His soul yearned. It's his whole body. It's in be involved. The body, the soul, the heart, the flesh, the heart sings for joy to the living God in that place with the people of God. This idea of yearning, it's a Hebrew word. The idea, the Hebrew word for that translated yearning is it's an interesting word. It's a pining away, if you know what that word means. I'll try it again. It's, it's a it's a great longing to the point that you're spent, to the point that you've, you're at an end, that you're finished, you've yearned so much. The psalmist just doesn't want to be in the temple. He doesn't want to just look at the great architecture of the temple. He's not interested in the building. He's interested in his God, and he's interested in being in the presence of God, and he's interested in the people of God, the family of God gathered in this culminating, glorious lifting of the hearts around the theology of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, singing the praises of God with the people of God. He's interested in the presence and the people of God, not the architecture, although it must have been kind of neat. There's no heartless going through the motions there. This is real. This is wholehearted. His whole body and emotions are involved. This is not some sort of a show. It's not checking the box for my Sunday morning thing that I've earned before God. This is not phony. Now, under the new covenant, we don't have the temple now. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to that. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And so, and did you know that there's another temple in the new covenant? It's the temple of you. You, in the, in the Greek sense of you, us, we, Yaal, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When the people of God gather in a geographical location together to be in the presence of God, His power, His felt presence is here among us in a powerful way. Did you realize that? The household of God, this is no small thing that we do when we gather with the people of God. We gather through the Spirit 
to experience the presence of Christ in a unique way through the opening up of apostolic teaching. In the ordinances of the Lord's table and baptism, He's here among us in a powerful way. In the prayers, in the fellowship of this place. I mean, do we long to gather with the saints and this fellow body that comes anywhere close to the longing described in this passage to be in the temple of God with the people of God? When we first met back, I think it was May 31st, remember when we didn't meet because of COVID, we were sort of, I was preaching to Kean and, and Pastor Jim and the, and the screen for weeks on end. And when we first met, the joy that we had to be back together singing the praises of God and preaching the Word of God. It was so lovely. What is it like? Look at verse 3. The bird, this is so, okay, let me just unpack this for you, verse 3. I never really understood this. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. So evidently, if you think of the temple, it's got to have rafters. It's got to have a a roof. Evidently, those, those blessed birds, those dirty birds, I would just love to be in the temple in the presence of God with the people. of Those birds are there 24-7. They've made a nest in the, in the rafters. They've taken permanent abode there with full access and safety, a home right there in the temple in the presence of God. There's a sermon there. Oh, how I want to be like the birds, the psalmist says. Oh, How happy would it be, how satisfied to dwell in your house, ever praising you. Salah. A pause to reflect about the birdies in the presence of God. Would we be satisfied? Would we be satisfied? without the gathered worship of our God in the local church? No. That's the answer. I mean, I'm just going to say it. No, never would we be satisfied as believers. Perhaps there will come a time when persecution to the local church around the world, scatters believers. And that, I think, will bring more light to Psalm 27, to Psalm 84. Perhaps then it will become one of our favorite psalms again. Like it was for pastors in Germany, like the pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a faithful pastor who knew the yearnings, the longings for the gathering of the local church under the rule of Hitler and his persecution on the true church. Not the church that bent the knee, but the true church. 
And Bonhoeffer said this about the gathering of the local church. He says, quotes, It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world and share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands, they stand alone. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. They remember, as the psalmist did, how they went with the multitude to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept holy day in Psalm 24. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. End quotes. The first characteristic that marks satisfaction in God alone is delight in God's presence, surrounded by God's people. Now, second characteristic that marks satisfaction in God alone is strength from God's power. Strength from God's power in verses 5 through 7. Not all the Jews, now you have to, we've got to put ourselves back there in Israel in that day. In Jerusalem, there was the temple, that was the place of worship, the place of the Shekinah glory, the special presence of the Lord, but not everybody lived there. I mean, they lived around the Sea of Galilee. It's a, what, 50-mile, it's a long journey that they were required to make, I think, three times a year or so, and it's quite a pilgrimage. And that pilgrimage, to get to that, that temple to worship, I mean, it was quite a deal fraught with many dangers and many trials. And so the psalmist in this psalm isn't in the temple. He longs to be there, though, and he's he's going to make that pilgrimage, that trek to the temple. And yet, we're to find that even though he's not there, he knows that God is his satisfaction, even on the journey, even on the way there, that God's presence is still with him even on that journey. And so he becomes satisfied and he draws on God's strength even in the difficult journey to get to the temple. That that he's satisfied with God in the midst of that suffering. That he's blessed by God even with that burden of travel. And he's happy in God even in that hard road home. To Jerusalem. Because he's strengthened from God's power. Look at verse 5. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now you got to think about the pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem to the temple. And he says, Happy. Blessed is the man whose strength is in Yahweh, in God. So what does it look like? And this is key. We're making the pilgrimage. It's very difficult. It's dry and it's barren. There are marauders. There are enemies that will keep us from getting to the temple. 
What does it look like on this road, on this path, to be strengthened by God? Well, I think that that's what the second half of verse 5 is telling us. How do we get the strength? The second half of verse 5, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Literally, highways are in their hearts. That highway to Zion, that highway to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the presence of God, in their hearts are the highways. And I think the way he writes this, that this is meant even in that day, not to just be speaking of that physical pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but even then, it was metaphorical for that life of following God and the difficulty of being a believer. And and so it applies to the church on our hard road home to heaven. How do we receive strength from the Lord? How do we receive strength? And he tells us, It is written upon our hearts, dear believer. It is written upon our hearts. Heaven, the road home is there. The pathways to Zion, the highway to Zion is indelibly written upon our hearts. That we long within our hearts to be with God, to, to hear from Him, to be near to Him, to experience Him, the fellowship of His sufferings. That longing is written upon our hearts. It's written on our parts, that our, our hearts, that our greatest desire in this life and in the life to come is one desire. It's to be in the presence of God. It's to see Him face to face. That's our longing to be set free. Those are the highways that are written upon our hearts. Heaven is written upon our hearts. Andy, could you come up and help me with the mic, please? Thank you. So they're called highways here because it's our path. It, it, it's, our, it's our plan. It's our direction. We are on a journey with God. Every Christian, thank you, every Christian is a pilgrim and we're making progress. We are on this path. And, and it's like the glory of God is right in front of us, like the pillar of fire and cloud that they followed. We follow him. We see his glory in the face of Christ. We can experience it now. And those highways, his full glory is written upon our hearts. And we continue on in that path. That is strength in this passage. The strength is, is experiencing that presence of God here and now. And ultimately, our hope to be in that unmitigated presence of His glory. Now, that desire then, that highway in our heart that's refreshed and reminded, that strengthens us for the dryness now, for the affliction now, for the misunderstanding now, for the loneliness now. For the lack of fellowship now. Our satisfaction comes when we are strengthened by the Lord. When we are strengthened by the Lord to have our hearts reset back upon the highways and to remember where the blessedness and the happiness and the satisfaction in this life and the life to come where it really lies. That 
is the strength. That we are reminded of this psalm that everybody's grandma loves the most, Psalm 23. That even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil for you are with me. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, the Jews had a hard pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God, but the believers would be say, that doesn't matter. He's here now. God will sustain me. God will supply me. And he will lead me into full, into full satisfaction in his presence. Well, this, is, this gets even better. I want you to see what it looks like and that we're right on the interpretation of where the strength comes. Look at verse 6. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. The valley of Baca. Did you know what that means? It means the valley of of weeping, the valley of weeping, the valley of tears. Literally in that day, the pilgrims trying to get to Jerusalem, it was dry, hot, dangerous, and very difficult. So in that sense, it is the valley of tears. But even for, for every reader of this psalm, it's meant to be a metaphor, a picture of the valley of weeping that we find ourselves in in this life, the valley of tears. That represents then times of affliction and times of pain and, and dryness, times of trial, times of difficulty, and those things don't just lead to a tear, the valley of a tear, that would be a different Hebrew word. They, they lead to a valley of absolute mess, Valley of weeping. This is the description of the hard road home. The valley of Baca. Yet verse 6 is there. Passing through. Isn't that a great truth? Just the word passing through. Passing through the valley of Baca. They make it a spring. They make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. Stop there. They make it a spring. So the dryness may be dry, but God is there. God is there in a tangible way. He brings the rain. He brings the provision for the journey. He is there. It's, yes, it's a barren desert, but God is there, and God supplies blessing to his children. In the dry valley of weeping, he sends rain. He sends an immediate supply. It's from his hand. It's his sovereign supply, a full supply of grace. It comes from his own strength. It comes from his own hand. There's a promise here for him to supply strength for us in our time of need, that he himself is there. It is his power that sustains us. He gives us strong support. He sends us rain in the valley of Baca, and 
There's some human responsibility here. We don't just let go and let God. They make it a spring. We make a choice. And you're not alone in this valley. They, they make it a spring. They, they make it a spring. This valley of Bacah, because God has supplied the rain. Together, from strength to strength, we walk, giving support to one another. Maybe it's a kind word that you give. Maybe it's a note that you drop in the mail. Maybe it's a text with a verse. Maybe it's an arm on the shoulder. Maybe it's a hug when you're weeping. They make it a spring on this hard road home to heaven. When we make it home, well, let's find out. It's kind of an important question. Look at verse 6. They walk... So there's the walk. It's a movement. They walk is better than go. They walk from strength in one trial, right? You see it? To strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. Whoa. We're moving in the valley of weeping from strength to strength. We don't quit. We keep moving. We press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We, they, we go together. God supplied strength to you, did he not, yesterday? Well, where was that strength for? What was that for? That was for yesterday. Then he's promised to give us what? Strength for today. And then what? Strength for tomorrow. They go from strength to strength. God supplies it. And we will help each other into the supply. We will help each other into the supply of strength. And there is progress. And will we make it to the temple in the full felt presence of God and his people as the pilgrims make it to the temple? Will you make it to the ultimate temple, to your destination on glory? What does the text tell you? Every one of them will appear before God in Zion. How many of them will appear before God in Zion? Every one of them. Isn't that incredible? Because their appearance before God does not depend on their hiking skills or anything else. Their ultimate getting home depends on God's strength, God's grip of them, His promise to supply. I think this is the Philippians 1.6 of the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament in Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident. Remember this? Remember this? For I'm confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, we will go from strength to strength because it's not our strength, it's God's strength. So, we do not need to be discouraged. And therefore, even in the Psalms, the blessedness, the springs, the strength, The glory, the satisfaction starts now in the wilderness journey. Oh, but it culminates at the end. Oh, there's more coming in the end. May we remember the they in this passage. They go from strength to strength. It reminds me of Isaiah's encouragement to a beat-down people of God. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31, 
Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So, now I want you to remember, you're saying, how do I get the C.S. Lewis kind of joy you were talking about? This is no joke. This is the answer to that question. (laughs) I mean it. So let's review. Okay, what marks satisfaction? It's God. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, we have satisfaction in God's presence, and we have satisfaction in the strength of God's power. Now, third, and, and, and God's experience of God's presence and the experience of God's strength and His power are all are going to be experienced only if we can grasp this third one, this third secret to satisfaction in God. So this is important. Number three characteristic that marks satisfaction of God is trust in God's plan and promises in verses 8 through 12. A trust in God's plan and promises. Now, you're going to have to put your thinking cap on, so hang with me. Trust in God's plan first, and then we'll, that will lead into trust in God's promises. Do you have your outline? Now, notice that the third blessedness of the section of Psalm 84, that satisfaction and blessedness that is found for the believer, is found in one way. It is not earned by works. And by how well you can trek in the desert and how good hiking skills you have. It is connected in one way in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is connected by faith alone. I want you to see that. Look at verse 12. It's the last line. O Lord of hosts, how and, and, the, and the blessing is in the last verse that kind of is going to then inform all of verses 8 through 12. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who what? Who earns your favor? How blessed is the man, how satisfied is the man who trusts in you. So, whether you, and I love this, you guys, the scholars all debate. He's at the temple when he writes. No, he's not at the temple. He's on the way. What does it matter? This is the whole point. Because Our our trust, our satisfaction, whether we're in the desert or we're there in the unmitigated presence of God, it is all going to be faith alone, and it's all going to be our satisfaction. It doesn't matter where he's at. It's going to be faith in God's plan and promises. Take a look at verses 8 and 9, because faith is poured out in prayer in verse 8. Look at 8, O Lord God of hosts, and then he prays, hear my prayer. How do you want to know you have faith? which is verse 12, verse 8 is happening. You're praying, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Salah. Now watch this, verse 9. Hang with me. Behold our shield, O God. He's not calling God a shield right here in verse 8. He says, Behold, God, I'm praying to you. Behold our shield, O God. Let me say it a different way, he says. And look upon the face of your anointed. 
God, God of armies, the powerful God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has made promises to Israel, promises of glory. And, and the psalmist knows way more than you think of the promises of the anointed one here, of the Messiah, of the king that would come, of the king that was there, yes. But even the psalmist knows that the king, that anointed one, that shield that he prays for, is really praying for the Messiah, for the final king. He's praying for the king. He's praying for the Messiah here. You say, you've lost me. Well, let's, get, let's figure this out. He prays for our shield that God would look upon the face of the anointed, literally the Messiah. So he's praying for the king of Israel. The current king, who's a little a anointed one, and the final king, who's a big anointed one, or the current king who's a small shield, or the ultimate king, the one who is actually equated to Yahweh himself, the ultimate shield. He prays for this shield. Now, look at this prayer request. I love this, how you have to interpret the scriptures. Look at verse 10. For a day in your courts is, a be- is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now, hold on a second. Just don't, I know we, we sing the song and it's a song and all that, so we miss the context. Do you realize they're there, they're at the temple or they're on their way, they're anticipating the prayers and the praises of the people. And what did they pray for in the temple? They prayed and they had faith in the ultimate plan of God to bring the Redeemer King, to bring the Messiah, to win in history and to establish the promises to Israel. And he says, I pray for the shield, for a day in your courts is a better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a door. I pray for our current king, that he would keep watch over Israel, that the journey would be safe, that the people of God could dwell in a safe temple without enemies and worship in the temple of God. He's praying for the plan of God over Israel for that time and the future. So the Lord bless Israel and bless her king to protect us from enemies so that we'll always be able to draw near to God in the temple. And then he starts to then, as a way of beginning the end of the psalm, go back to the presence of God and remind us why he's praying that prayer for protection and for blessing upon the anointed one of Israel for the protection of the place of worship. He begins to think about the courts again. And he says, oh, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand in the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, I want you to to listen to me here for just a second. If you're trying to figure out satisfaction in this life, you've got to hear me. The psalmist would rather spend one day in the temple praying and praising with the people of God mediated by the priests in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God, worshiping God, than a thousand days doing anything else. Than a thousand days doing, you name it, anything else. Hawaii, anything else. That's incredible. Reflect on that. But then he describes this longing in even a deeper way. A deeper way. Listen. I, let me say it again. He says, let me, that's not even close. 
I'd rather stand on the threshold of the house of God, of the temple. Not, by the way, on the household of my God. I'd rather do that than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So standing on the threshold in the temple is standing just at the entrance of the temple. Not near the holy of holies and all of that, but just inside the temple. Not the prime position. In fact, by standing there, he, uh, that's the place the beggars would stand. And so the psalmist is comparing himself to that place of humility, the place of a beggar in the temple of God, not near the presence of God where the famous priests and all of those guys would go. He reminds me of the, the Pharisee, I prayed thus with the Holy of Holies right behind me, while the sinner stood at the outside on the threshold as a beggar before God, just knowing he needs God. And he'd said, I'd rather stand as a beggar on the, on the household of God then right down, then then a thousand days, and then in all of the tents of wickedness, all of the pleasures and provisions of this world. Give me all of the sin, all of the money, all of the popularity, everything this world has to offer. He'd rather be a beggar on the threshold of the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. He'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. So the psalmist is praying for the king because he wants the temple to be protected so they can continue to worship God there. And it gives you the fe- that gives you just a feel, doesn't it, for the horror of the destruction of the temple when it happened. The abandonment of God for the destruction of the temple gives you a feel for the horror of that a little bit. And it also gives you a feel for something else. Because make no mistake about it, by using the term anointed or Messiah here, very unique, the psalmist is, is, in, is pointing forward not just as an unknowing prophet, but in his own mind, he, he is pointing forward to the final and ultimate king, the Messiah, who would fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament, all these blessings, the blessing of salvation, the true king of Zion, the greater David, who would bring peace with God and will one day rule from Jerusalem and the nations would stream into him and he would win in history. They were praying for the Messiah, the anointed one. And that's what's really interesting here. There's some seeds planted about him. Notice the prayer in verse 9 is for this shield, this, this human protector, the protector of Israel, the king, the Messiah. So there's this Messiah who is the king in verse 9. He's called a shield. But then all of a sudden in verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. It's the same word. He's the shield. It's the Lord God. God is the strength like the sun, and God is a shield from our danger. And I think there's a hint here that this king is the shield. The Lord God is our shield. So underneath it, we see a whisper of the God-man, of the one who is a small-ass human shield, and the one who is the Lord God, who is the shield. And we see the God the Father, and we see God the Son, and a whisper of the Trinity, even in this passage, as the psalmist prays for the anointed one, 
the appointed eternal king, and he finds his strength as he trusts in the plan of God and his Messiah. And so also we, on this hard road home to heaven, track with me here, right? Where God and the Lamb are the temple. I want you to take your Bibles. So also we must trust in the plan of God with this Messiah. Turn to the book of Revelation and find verse 21, and we'll see our great satisfaction. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. You see the presence? And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Look at verse 22 of Revelation 21. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And then look at Revelation 22, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. And they will what? They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will, they will not have need of the light of the lamp nor of the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. And God is saying us the strength of the spring is the hope of the final temple where will the full, unmitigated presence of God where we'll finally be free from the struggle with sin, with the struggle with our own shame, with the struggle of our own failures and insufficiencies. We will see him for who he is and all of his unmitigated glory, and we're going to be all transformed and be able to handle that, and we will see him in that glory. And we go with our eye on that temple, and we, we hope for it, and he strengthens us in the hope for that. And so we make even this valley of weeping a string, a, a a spring because we have joy in trusting in the plan of God and we still pray like the psalmist of old. Don't we, brothers and sisters? Do we not pray for the Messiah? Do we not pray for our shield and our protector to come? Isn't that the last prayer of the Word of God? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the consummation of our misery, the ending of it, and the fullness of our satisfaction in Him. And it is real. And it is our joy even now in the valley of Baca. It is our strength. But there's more. And we have one minute. Are you ready? Now watch this. We ha in order to trust in God's plan at the biggest possible picture, we have to trust in God's promises right now. And that's where He goes. Look at it in verse 11. The Lord God, now watch this, it's easy, it's three G's, at least in the New American Standard. The Lord gives grace and glory, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So, if we're going to see that big picture plan, then we must believe these three promises. And here they are, and this is the application. 
Number one, we've got to believe the Lord gives grace. We've got to believe the Lord gives grace, the first G. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that in Jesus Christ, your righteousness and your forgiveness, that he is enough for you and an unmerited favor in grace? He has given you everything you need to equip you for glory and forever. He has given you grace in Christ. Do you believe it? We must, what? Trust the promises. And he also gives grace, a different kind of grace, which is it's the unmerited favor of God's strength to, to pour out the reins upon us from strength to strength. Do you believe that he gives you grace for the journey? Do you believe that his grace is enough for you? All right, we got that. And then he says, the second G, the Lord gives glory. This one's a little harder for us to understand. We will be glorified. Do you believe it, believer, that these, we're going to shed this stuff and we're going to be like him when we see him and sin is going to be sizzled away? It is a gift of God. The Lord gives it. You don't earn it. He gives glory. And we get that. We kind of get the grace part that starts us out. We forget about the power part. But we get the grace part that starts us out. We kind of get the glory part. But do you believe it in the middle, in the valley of Bacah, that God only gives good? Do you believe that? The third G. Because that's what this text says. Look at it. I mean, I have to read it. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Really? 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 When you lose your job, when you die at age 40 from kidney cancer, leave your wife and a two-year-old daughter, no good thing does he withhold. Which one's good? Do you think we need some faith? You think he ends on verse 12 for a reason? No good thing. This is the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. You say that's easy to say to those who aren't suffering. Jeff, you don't know my suffering. I don't know your suffering, but I know suffering. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We need more faith. D.A. Carson says this. He says, quotes, Isn't it obvious that God withholds lots of good things from lots of people whose walk is about as blameless as walks can get this side of the new heaven and the new earth? End quotes. The book of Job. That's what D.A. Carson says, a theologian. Now I want you to remember Eric Little. Remember the famous Scottish Olympian who celebrated in that great film, it's a great film, The Chariots of Fire. Well, Eric Little, after he ran and won that Olympic gold, became a missionary in China. And he taught in a school for 10 years in China. And then he went further inland. It was very dangerous. He did some very dangerous but very effective, if you read about it, very effective evangelism. It cost him, however. He was swept in with other Westerners in a camp in the war in a prison camp, and in the midst of this basically a prison camp, in the midst of suffering, Eric Little, D.A. Carson says, quotes, was a shining light of service and good cheer, a lodestar for the many children there who had not seen their parents for years, a self-sacrificing leader, end quotes. 
you say, praise God for Eric Little. But what did Eric Little get for his service? You know his story? Do you know it? Well, how about this? A few months before they were released from that prison camp, Eric Little, the one who ran for the glory of God and served as a missionary in China, died of a brain tumor at the age of 43. A brain tumor. Carson goes on to say, quotes, In this life he never saw the youngest of his three daughters. His wife and children had returned to Canada before the Japanese sweep that rounded up the foreigners, end quotes. And then Carson asked the question, quotes, Didn't the Lord withhold from him a long life, years of fruitful service, the joy of rearing his own children? End quote. Did he not withhold good? And I would ask you, what does sight tell you? But then I would ask you this, what does faith tell you? What does faith tell you? And I believe that Eric Little and Chris Drager and Richard Wormbrandt, I believe Lloyd Johnson is saying and has said, I know God is good and only gives good. I know it. I can't explain it to you. He is my son. He is my shield. He is my strong tower. I have gone and I will go from strength to strength. Oh, he has a plan. His glorious Messiah will conquer. And he is my ultimate satisfaction. It cannot be stolen from me. For my satisfaction is found in God alone. For I delight in his presence. I receive strength from his power. And I choose to trust and his plan, and his promises. And fathers here today, I don't have any more parenting tips for you than this. By God's grace, live out Psalm 84 before your children. Don't be frantic. Have faith. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we needed Psalm 84.